Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. Remember, next Thursday, April 25th, from 6 to 8 at Whiskey 6 in Gross Point, you can join me and Nancy Derringer from Deadline Detroit, as well as Sandra Swoboda of Great Lakes Now for a Smart Politics Happy Hour. Uh, you are going to lead the conversation at this happy hour. You're going to tell us about the issues that are on your mind and that you need answers to. And we're going to take those concerns up with us to the Mackinac Policy Conference at the end of May and put them to elected officials and policymakers who will be gathered there. It's going to be a lot of fun. We'll have some drinks. We'll have great conversation and question and answer. So mark your calendar, April 25th at Whiskey 6 from 6 to 8 p.m. I will be there and I hope you will too. Okay, we want to talk about reparations today. And one of the big surprises of the early campaign for president in 2020 is the role that reparations has played. The idea that America might owe the descendants of slaves and the survivors of four centuries of inequality, something in remuneration. Every Democratic candidate is being asked about this issue. And there are now specific bills in Congress that have been introduced to study the idea, including one by Senator Cory Booker, who is one of the Democratic hopefuls. It's fair to say that this issue is getting more attention now than it has at any time in recent memory. And it's also fair to say that it could really shape the political discussion over the next year. We want to spend much of the day talking about race and racism in the context of reparations, history, present, and past. A little later, we'll hear about an effort at Georgetown University to get reparations for the families of slaves who were sold to help the university survive in the early 19th century. And we're going to talk about the practical end of reparations, how and what and whether it's something that could really happen. But we want to start with a discussion of history and the era of racial discord that set the stage for many of our modern narratives. A four-hour PBS documentary that aired this week looks at the time right after the Civil War, when there was this brief window of opportunity to really take on structural racism and make up for America's original sins. But that window closed abruptly. Joining us now to talk more about Reconstruction and the era of racial reconciliation right after the Civil War is Eric Foner. He is the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University and author of Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He is also one of the experts who is featured throughout this PBS series, Reconstruction. Eric Foner, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Uh, Very nice to be here. So let's start with uh, talking about Reconstruction. I think of Reconstruction as uh, the sort of predicate for many of the arguments and discussions that we have today about racial inequality. Uh, As I said in the open, it was It was this opportunity, really, this window that opened to really deal with the substance uh, of racial inequality that was baked into uh, the founding of America. But that window didn't stay open long enough uh, for us to get that done. It closed pretty quickly, and that is the legacy that sort of casts forward to even 2019. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, Reconstruction is the period right after the Civil War, as you said. 
but it's also, you might say, a sort of broad historical process by w- in which the country tried to come to terms with the consequences of the destruction of slavery. Four million people were freed as a result of the Civil War. And, um, you know, the question became, what is going to be their status in American society? Are they going to have the same rights as white people? Are they going to be citizens? Are they going to have the right to vote, uh, economic opportunity, etc., etc.? Now, you know, remarkable things were accomplished in that really 12-year period of Reconstruction. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of African-American men were elected to public offices in the, for the first time, ranging from two members of the U.S. Senate down to state legislators, uh, local officials like uh, school board officials, sheriffs, justices of the peace. Um, And uh, the laws and the Constitution were rewritten in order to put the principle of equality before the law and the right to vote for black men into the the Constitution. Um, The first public school systems in Southern history were set up to try to educate both the freed people and whites, many of whom had no education there also. so it was a remarkable moment in American history, but unfortunately, and we maybe can understand this looking around our society today, uh, the very progress that took place sparked a violent racist backlash. Uh, you know, we hear about the Ku Klux Klan, but many other such organizations, also uh, the White League and the Red Shirts and others who used terrorism, really, you'd say it's homegrown terrorism, to um, attack and overthrow these uh, these governments. And then, so, there followed a long retreat uh, in what we call, of course, the Jim Crow era, where many of these rights and achievements were wiped away. But not all. I mean, it's, we should not just think Reconstruction failed and leave it at that. Um, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments remained in the mm-hmm. Constitution. Um, the institutions, African Americans had established the black church, family structures, schools, the uh, black colleges, which were created then, uh, all those survived and uh, became the foundation for black communities going way into the uh, 20th century. Mm-hmm. I-, I could give you a long lecture on Reconstruction. I already <laughs> feel I'm doing that, but I'll stop there. No, no, it's important. Say it's, it's a pivotal era for us to understand if we want to think about race today. Yeah, uh, and that's where I was headed next is uh, this this 12-year period where, as you know, there's significant progress on some fronts, uh, but that progress incites this very virulent backlash, violent backlash, uh, again, sets the stage for the next uh, the next 160, 170 years that we've had um, uh, since that time. Uh, I wonder if you can sort of put into context the, the debates that we're having now about things like reparations uh, in the context yeah, I mean, of one of the things that uh, is striking is First of all, how many Reconstruction issues are being debated right now on the front page of our newspaper? I mean, <laughs> citizenship. Who should be an American citizen? That's a Reconstruction issue. Um, who should have the right to vote? Uh, that's being debated. You know, there's all this voter suppression mm-hmm. going on. That's a Reconstruction question. Terrorism, as I said. Economic opportunity. What's the relationship between political rights and economic opportunity? Uh, that relates right back to the question of reparations. Uh, that's a Reconstruction issue. Uh, but in terms of reparations, you know, I, you might say that the, um, in Reconstruction, the political revolution went forward dramatically, but the economic revolution didn't. The famous, 
you know, slogan, 40 acres and a mule, mm-hmm. which really reflected the desire or the demand of uh, the former slaves for some kind of economic foundation uh, for their freedom. Uh, that didn't happen. The, the, the idea of distributing land, taking land from the old slave owners and distributing it to the former slaves didn't happen, except in a very, very tiny number of places. And that left um, most African Americans obviously coming out of slavery quite poor. Uh, they didn't have property. Um, they had little choice but to go back to work, often on the same plantations for uh, their former owners. Uh, and that, you know, sort of undermined the foundations of the political and civil rights they had achieved. So the question of reparations really comes out of Reconstruction and the failure of uh, land distribution, uh, which was certainly on the political agenda at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and that planned redistribution uh, was the focus of, of a lot of the pushback, this idea of taking land from white yeah. slave owners and giving it to African Americans was the, the, the sort of nexus of, of this idea that, hey, we're, we're not going to do this. Uh, we don't think that's fair. We don't think that's necessary and uh, uh, and so it went it, it just didn't happen yeah I mean at that very moment of course the government was giving millions of acres of land to railroad corporations in order to encourage them to build you know the transcontinental railroad and others it was offering free land in the West through the Homestead Act to anybody black former slaves could go out west and take up a homestead that's not what they wanted to do they wanted to get land where they were um, and uh, so it's not that there was no possibility of having land distributed, but as you say, the idea of taking it from one class, the white owners, and giving it to blacks simply didn't generate uh, enough support uh, in the North. The idea of private property, redistributing private property, was uh, kind of alarming to a lot of people. So, so let's cast that forward to 2019 when we see, as I said, every person who enters the presidential race on the Democratic side being asked about the idea of reparations. Uh, we see bills in Congress for the first time really uh, sort of aligning yeah. around the idea of studying the issue, at least. Uh, is it a more palatable suggestion now? I mean, it, it, is it somehow different than the idea of 40 acres? I, yeah, in a yeah I think it is certainly different in that, as you point out, it has become a central issue in the Democratic uh, political primary campaign. Um, it hasn't, it's been much more on the margins, most of the, you know, recent, most uh, of our history. Um, and uh, just about every candidate, as you said, has now, you know, what they're generally asked is not, are you in favor of reparations, but would you support the bill that's been introduced to study reparations? Mm-hmm. And they all say yes. Now, of course, studying it doesn't tell you what the end result is going to be. But nonetheless, that assumes that it's a legitimate political you know, uh, question that candidates have to respond to. You know, I think if you look back on American history, you'll see that demands for reparations have risen and fallen um, at various times. I mean, there was a whole movement in the 1890s for what you might call pensions for former slaves, mm-hmm. that these people had worked, uh, were now getting older, they, they didn't have Social Security or anything back then, and that the government should sort of, it, it's a kind of reparation, should give elderly former slaves money to live on as payment for all the work they'd done without any compensation. That didn't succeed, obviously. Marcus Garvey in the 19th 
20s talked about reparations. What, what usually happens, and I think today is a good example, when other political avenues seem to be blocked, there doesn't seem to be much chance right now with our president and the Congress of forward-looking social policy to address the inequities of income, of um, you know the criminal justice system, of education that still plague uh, many parts of black America. When that seems to be blocked, people talk about reparations. It's another way of trying to deal with this. When people are optimistic and they think, well, you know, things are really moving forward, then you don't hear quite as much about reparations. But given the political situation we're in now, it's not at all surprising that reparations is again being, you know, is on the political agenda. Uh, my guest is Eric Foner. He is the DeWitt Clinton Professor of History at Columbia University and author of Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. He's also one of the experts who is featured throughout the PBS series Reconstruction, which aired this week. Uh, he's also author of a number of important books about race and history. Uh, they have concentrated on the intersections of intellectual, political, and social history and the history of American race relations. His book, The Fire trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft and Lincoln Prizes in 2011. If you want to join the conversation, we're talking about Reconstruction and how it kind of frames the narrative for the discussion we're having now about uh, reparations, uh, which has taken a surprisingly prominent uh, space up in the run-up to the 2020 presidential elections. Tell us what you think about the idea of reparations. Is that something that is even possible to think through and get to a place that we actually enact here uh, in the United States in, in 2019. Uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, what's on your mind? Good morning. Hey. Question and a follow-up statement. Mm -hmm. Has America ever made reparations to any other group, um, i.e. the Indians, uh, Japanese after the war, mm -hmm. uh, any other groups? And if they have, why is it that it's such a dilemma to make reparations to Africans? Hmm. I believe statement. Uh, yeah, that that's a good question. Um, and the answer is yes. You know, there are, reparations take, can take many forms. It has happened in a number of places all around the world. In the United States, yes, Japanese Americans who were interned during World War II, stripped of their rights, put into these camps, did receive reparations. In fact, under the Reagan administration, although President Reagan wasn't too happy about it, he signed a bill. I think each person got about $25,000 as payment for the, you know, what, what they had suffered. Um, but that only applied to people who had been in the camps. In other words, if, they, if the person had died subsequently, that nobody else, their children, their grandchildren, didn't get reparations. So that's not quite what people are talking about today vis-a-vis African-Americans, because there's nobody alive today who was a slave before the Civil War. Um, Native Americans have not exactly gotten reparations, but they certainly have been able to go to court, some of them, and, ha and get payment for the violation of treaties when they were promised land and then it was taken away later on. There have been courts that have said, well, these people need payment for the land that was kind of stolen from them mm -hmm. in violation of treaties with the United States government. 
probably the closest analogy to what people are talking about today about reparations is with Germany, actually. The German, the West German government, and then now the German government, uh, since the reunification of Germany, every year pays money to the state of Israel, which is a, a reparations for the crimes that were committed against Jews under the Nazis. Um, it doesn't necessarily go to victims. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm Jewish. I could go to Israel tomorrow, and I would benefit in some way, even though I didn't suffer from the Holocaust. Um, so it's reparations to a people, not to specific individuals. Right. Um, you know, so that's maybe a kind of model that might be looked at in the United States. But uh, there is a lot of pushback, as you well know. There are many practical problems in specifying how reparations would work. Uh, does it have to only go to the descendants of slaves? What about black immigrants? There's a lot of Africans who have come to the United States in the last sure. 30, 40 years. Should they benefit from reparations? Um, you know, it, it's, it's, once you start thinking about it, it gets complicated. But that doesn't matter. There's a lot of things that are complicated, and that's part of <laughs> that politics. That we sort through, through, right? I mean, and, yeah. and I think this is where Aaron was headed uh, with what he wanted to say after asking his question is that there is something peculiar about race in this country and the history of race in this country and the way we deal with race, the way that the majority population thinks of African and African-American people that stands in the way of uh, a reasonable conversation about this and separates yeah, it from yeah, other that, other instances. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, ironically, the election of President Obama led many white people to say, well, well there's no problem anymore. Look, we've got a black president. Right. <laughs> Obviously, we're now post-racial people. Can we, this is the first time in American history we've elected an African-American as president. Um, and therefore, these problems no longer exist, so to speak. Well, that, unfortunately, history has shown more recent history that that's uh, not really the right uh, uh, the conclusion to draw. Um, but yes, you know, I think many uh, white Americans, when they hear about reparations, sort of think they're being accused of something. Yes. And that they personally are sort of guilty and have to pay something. And I don't think that's what the reparations debate is all about, pointing fingers at individual white people and saying, you're guilty, you know. Um, but I think a lot of people take it that way. And that's one of the reasons there's uh, a lot of pushback, absolutely. Uh, it's, you know, I mean, personally, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm not running for office. You know, I think w somehow... One has to get beyond the, the, the term, the word itself, reparations, and think about what is necessary to try to overcome, in terms of social policy, the inequities in the society, in terms of the school systems, in terms of health, in terms of uh, criminal justice, incarceration. Um, I don't care if you call it reparations or not. I think we need direct action to deal with these inequalities which come out of history, not just the history of slavery, but the history of Jim Crow and segregation and disenfranchisement and inequality in the job market, which lasted, well, you know, last into today and goes sure. back well after, you know, starts after the end of slavery. So it's not just a question of slavery. It's a question of the racism which was embedded in the society all the way through uh, after the overthrow of Reconstruction. But whether that's politically viable, We'll, we'll have to see. Yeah. Okay, Eric Foner, 
uh, professor of history at Columbia University and author of Reconstruction, America's Unfinished Revolution. It was really great to have you with us here on Detroit Today. Okay, nice to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Up next, students at Georgetown University have voted to pay for reparations for the families of 272 slaves who were sold to benefit the university back in 1838. We're going to talk with one of those descendants. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. You can download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you and listen when you are ready. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Carolyn in Royal Oak, Tom in Northwest Detroit, James in Sumter Township. We'll get to you next as well. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you have joined us. We are talking this hour about the issue of reparations, which has made a surprisingly prominent uh, appearance in the the narrative of the run-up to the 2020 presidential election. Right now, we want to switch subjects just a little bit and talk about something that's happening at Georgetown University, where last week students voted to pay reparations to the descendants of slaves who were sold by the Jesuits who ran the school in 1838 to help the university survive a fiscal crisis. Uh, They sold those slaves to keep the college afloat, and the university in recent years has acknowledged the wrong that was done and has been researching ways to compensate descendants. The student plan would have all of the school's undergrads pay $27.20 each semester, which would generate $400,000 a year for a reconciliation fund that would benefit the descendants of the sold slaves. It's a symbolic vote, but it's a strong statement and an innovative way to deal with the school's horrible past. Joining us now to talk more about what's going on at Georgetown is Sherilyn Branch. She is president of GU272 Descendants Association, an organization that's working to connect the descendants of the 272 slaves sold by Jesuits in 1838 that benefited Georgetown University. Sherilyn Branch, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning, and welcome, and thank you for having me, first of all. Sure. Um, I'm honored to speak with you, and um, as in the past, um, representing GU272 Descendants Association. So thank you very much for having me. Sure. So let's go back to 1838. Uh, talk about what happened at Georgetown University. So in 1838, um, 272 slaves were sold by the university to um, three plantations uh, in areas, uh, three parishes in uh, Louisiana. And so those slaves, there were families um, basically sold together. Some of the families were broken up with aunts and uncles, but basically um, children, infant children, uh, men and women, brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers were sold together. And so um, the university profited um, by that sale uh, at the time, $115,000, um, that in today's money, uh, a little over $3 million. But uh, Georgetown University was in financial straits, in trouble, and so they used that money 
to save the university, something that um, was not a good thing, obviously, at the time, but it was used anyway to do that. So Georgetown exists today because those uh, families and those um, slaves were sold, and mm-hmm. they were enslaved as, as families, and so that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, let, let's stay in 1838 for, a, for just a minute. The idea of selling slaves into slavery in another state, in Louisiana in particular, in 1838 carried all kinds of uh, implications that I'm not sure people today quite understand. Slavery wasn't the same thing in every state. It didn't look the same. It didn't operate the same way every place. This was a particularly brutal decision that the Jesuits made. Is that right? That is correct. And being sold south was a horrifying aspect. Um, there were slaves or uh, enslaved uh, ancestors who ran away, who hid, who uh, in some cases a few of them were hidden by Jesuits because they were told ahead of time. So they had some idea of the brutality because they had heard about um, what happened on uh, sugar plantations in the South and how um, enslaved people were treated. So it was horrifying to them. Um, I can say that being sold as a family units in many cases um, helped them to stay together. Um, They were sold to particular plantations where um, they worked and lived, uh, obviously, uh, generationally for several years. But um, it was a brutal transfer, and um, they walked uh, quite a bit. Um, They rode um, barges and and ships down the Mississippi River and then were um, um, sold um, and are deposited mm-hmm. to those plantations. So let's talk about today. What's the effect of that action on those families today? You are one of the descendants of those slaves who were sold uh, down in Louisiana. Well, first of all, I found out um, my true history. So I always call it the truth as opposed to history. <laughs> I found out the truth <laughs> in April of 2016, uh, called all of my family members, and like many of us, uh, this gentleman, Richard Cellini, uh, called and got in contact with us. He had begun an organization uh, called the Georgetown Memory Project. And so many of us have found out the truth regarding our past. Um, But most of us have known that we did not come as free people of color to the United States and and that we were... um, the descendants of slaves. So for us, it is finding the truth, reconciling that, reconciling our past, and knowing um, uh, regarding what we need to do about it. And so this time for us is um, one of um, um, atonement for the United States in saying that we need to have that. But bigger than that, um, establishing um, the Institute for uh, the Study of Slavery's um, having Georgetown be a part of that, having um, the Jesuits be a part of the dialogue and making sure that what we see as um, our preferred future is something that they partner with us in. So right now, um, our organization um, is is a 501c7. We are working toward getting the truth out and reconciling that so that we don't think of reparations as much as repairing the breach and moving forward in a way that helps everyone to heal. Mm-hmm. 
My guest is Sherilyn Branch. She is the president of GU 272 Descendants Association, an organization that's working to connect the descendants of the 272 slaves who were sold by Jesuits in 1838 to benefit Georgetown University. We're talking about uh, the issue of reparations generally, but also a vote at Georgetown University among students to try to come up with a way to remunerate these descendants. They want to pay $27.20 each semester to generate about $400,000 a year for a reconciliation fund. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. What's your reaction? to this idea, a form of reparations that students have come up with at Georgetown University. Do you believe we should be having a serious national conversation about reparations and how to enact that, how to decide who should get reparations if we think people should receive that, and how that would work? How would that play out uh, in a modern context. Um, uh, as always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, uh, before I get to the phones, and we've got a lot of folks uh, who want to talk about this, uh, Sherilyn, I want to ask you about your reaction to what the students at Georgetown are suggesting. It's a pretty inventive, uh, it's a pretty inventive approach. I love that $27.20 to, <laughs> to sort of reflect the number 272. Uh, is, this, is this a way forward for the university? Well, I think the student message is the message that students on college campuses have always given us. They are doing what students on college campuses have always done, and that is to become activists in moving our society forward. Um, they've recognized the privilege of a quality education at Georgetown and the call to be a part of reconciling through an agreement. That $27.20 represents one-tenth of one percent of of their uh, tuition. Hmm. And so it is a meaningful um, message that I think the students are sending. And I think it's their energy uh, ignited by the truth that they discovered, um, that most humans are motivated by the truth. And unfortunately, um, some of that has been withheld for us, uh, by us or, or by our, our United States, um, because it hasn't been shared. Hmm. And I, I, I use the term truth because we talk about history, but history um, as written, has not always told us the truth. So now that they've been influenced by that, um, I think it's uh, laudable, and we certainly applaud uh, their actions as, a, as an organization. Mm. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's go to Tom in northwest Detroit. Tom, welcome to Detroit Today. Yeah, good morning to both of you. Mm-hmm. You know, Steve, earlier you said that you know uh, racism and what have you is this country's original sin. Mm-hmm. It's also its cardinal sin. And me, myself, I mean, I think it's a great idea, I and mean, it's a long time overdue, but, I mean, I'm not going to, you know, hold my breath waiting, you know, to, to be compensated for, you know, what happened to my ancestors. But, you know, this conversation, it needs to be, you know, discussed more. And also, why, not, why just limit it to the Democrats, Democratic candidates, Republican candidates? That question should be put to them as well. Hmm. Uh, Tom, I appreciate the call and and the thoughts. Uh, I, I imagine that it will eventually be put to Republican candidates if we get 
other Republican candidates other than uh, other than the president, uh, Donald Trump, who I would imagine is probably not a fan of reparations. Uh, I don't know that I've ever heard him speak specifically on that, but he said enough other things that suggest to me that he wouldn't be a fan. Uh, uh, Sherilyn Branch, I wonder what you make, though, of of Tom's skepticism that we can actually do this, that we can actually get to a place where we not only discuss the idea of reparations, but that there are things that uh, that get done. I think Georgetown actually, in this regard, is an interesting case study. Uh, this this was uh, a story that, uh, that, that came out a while ago at Georgetown, and I've been sort of watching as the university grapples with how to make up for what it uh, its its predecessors did a long time ago. It's it's kind of uh, a model maybe for the way in which we can actually have this discussion. Is that is that how you have felt as well? Well, certainly um, when the truth was exposed, and remember that was by a student demonstration. Um, when they heard about it, they really felt that the university had withheld the truth from them. Mm-hmm. And you know when students feel that way, they they tend to react and respond. And so uh, President DeJoy at the time established um, this uh, forum so that they could study um, and, and, and put together a plan that they felt uh, would work for the university, but it didn't include us. And it didn't include descendants, obviously. It was about um, what the university felt it should do. Mm which was renaming buildings and establishing institutes for the study of racism and then um, grant, granting legacy status uh, for incoming uh, descendants and then also to erect a memorial. So three of those things have been done, but that was a plan that the university put together. It did not include us. And so we wanted to make sure that what we felt should happen, which um, would have a long-standing effect, um, a binding agreement um, that would involve money, but that also would last for 180 years or 200 years regarding um, helping the dis- descendants that have been identified. And what is different about Georgetown is that we can name um, people. We know um, the faces of descendants. We know the truth. Um, there's something very empowering about that. And so um, there is still um, the legacy uh, the vestiges of slavery, physical harm, social and emotional trauma. So what are we going to do about it, and how do we arrive at that? It has to be something that we do together, and that involves our church, and I'll say our church because I'm still Catholic, <laughs> but the Catholic Church, Georgetown University, and other universities that have um, slavery past, and also um, descendants, because we should have a voice in what happens and in formulating any decisions that um, regarding how the universities and how the church deals with that. Sure. Uh, Tom, thanks very much for the call and the comments. Let's go to Kevin in Sterling Heights. Kevin, welcome to Detroit today. Good morning. Hey. Uh, this 272 uh, reparation idea is a very interesting one. Um, what is the end game? When can the guilt be paid off? Hmm. So, in other words, uh, you're saying uh, we wouldn't necessarily, in perpetuity, take twenty-seven dollars and twenty cents of every student's tuition and and put it into this fund. You 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 think there should be uh, a time in which you you consider that debt paid? Is that right, Kevin? I mean, is this just is this just another form of slavery? Just turning just turning the tables, 
and putting the slavery of guilt onto the future generations who did not vote for the two seventy. Yeah, I'm not sure I can. I'm not sure I can indulge that kind of comparison, Kevin. I think that's actually pretty crude and and not acknowledging anything about what slavery was. And I would encourage you to do some reading, maybe, uh, and maybe some watching of uh, the many films that that. Uh, have depicted exactly what slavery was like. I don't know how you could ever compare that to the idea that $27.20 of somebody's tuition might be contributed to, you know, remunerating people who were wronged by slavery. But but I think you've got a, a perfectly legitimate question there about is there a way to actually pay the debt off uh, and if we're going to get into this conversation about reparations, is it something that we want to think of as a time-limited uh, exercise? Sherilyn Branch, I'm really curious about your your take on that. Well, first of all, I'd like to address um, Kevin. There are a couple of books, um, Up from Slavery by Booker T. Washington and Great Before book, the yes. Mayflower by Lerone Bennett that chronicle um, the truth um, in terms of what happened in the United States and and the uh, the latter before the Mayflower goes into the 1990s. Uh, that's kind of the latest edition. They're good reading. I, I read them in college and it was very enlightening because when you take 200 years of that kind of chattel slavery, compare it to what could happen 200 years from now, um, you still will not replace the lives lost. Hmm and the effect of slavery on the United States. Remember, slavery not only shackled bodies, but it shackled the minds and hearts of people in America in a way that no other country has experienced. And so remember, that was transatlantic, not just within the United States. People were torn from their places where they lived and their cultures and brought here and infused in the United States, but not still not accepted. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how you ameliorate that in total, but we can begin to look at it through truth, um, through racial healing, dialogue and discussion, and then uh, transforming our minds and our thoughts and our energy for how we can do it. And again, Kevin, that's together. That's not just me saying it. It's also what you feel and how you transform and how I transform myself into understanding what we can do together. Okay, Sherilyn Branch, president of GU272 Descendants Association. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. You're welcome, Mm -hmm. and thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Up next, we're going to continue our conversation about reparations and the form they can take with author and journalist Ken Woodley. He proposed and led the successful fight for a state-funded scholarship program for the casualties of local public school closings in Virginia. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. Carolyn in Royal Oak, Judy in Detroit, James in Sumter Township. We'll get to you. If you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. In 1959, officials in Prince Edward County, Virginia, rather than accept the idea of desegregating their schools, shut down the public system altogether. And it was a move that was enthusiastically supported by the area's family-owned newspaper, the Farmville Herald. Those schools stayed closed until 1964 when courts forced their reopening. Our next guest, Ken Woodley, was the editor at the Farmville Herald for 24 years. And for a long time, he didn't know about this history. When he found out, he fought to make up for the paper's errors. He led the fight to establish a scholarship fund for the casualties of that longtime school closure. He chronicles his work in a new book, The Road to Healing. Ken Woodley, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, so talk about what it was like for you when you discovered that the newspaper you were working for had at one time really championed the idea of closing down schools rather than see them be integrated. Well, I was up in the newsroom. It was in the first year while I was there, and a professor's wife uh, came up to the newsroom and her eyes were throwing daggers at me. I had no reason why she felt such enmity. And finally, she said, you know what happened here, don't you? And I said, no. And she said, go to Longwood College, ask for the book. They closed their schools. It's in the rare book room, and see what you find out. So I immediately went up there. I started flipping through the pages. I started recognizing names. The Farmville Herald was throughout the book. Uh, J. Barry Wall Sr. was throughout the book. He was the editorial writer and publisher uh, during the Massive Resistance period. In fact, he was still the publisher and editorial writer when I joined the paper in 1979. And I was numbed. I was shocked. I felt like all the bones had been pulled out of my body. Hmm. I had no idea that any community had ever done anything like that to itself. I can't imagine to this day any community doing that to its own children, and it felt like life had parachuted me behind enemy lines. Hmm. Uh, Julian Bond describes your fight to get this scholarship fund uh, established as the first civil rights era reparations in U.S. history. Um, uh, Talk about what what you did and, and why you did it. The idea came to me uh, while I was driving to work in February of 2003. The General Assembly was considering an apology for massive resistance and the state's role in the school closures. And meanwhile, a Latin teacher in Prince Edward County High School had just suggested the idea of honorary diplomas for those who had been locked out of school and denied the chance to earn a real one. In an instant, those two ideas, uh, those two healing thoughts came together as one in my head, and if the state was going to say it's sorry, far better also to say, I'm sorry, and this is what I intend to do about it. And an honorary degree, there's, there's compassion, there's an attempt to heal in that, but it's, it's, a, it's a sheet of paper that means nothing. And neither the apology nor the honorary degree was educational opportunity given back. That had been stolen, and so the idea for the state to create a scholarship fund uh, for, the, for those African-American children who were now in their 50s to be able to go back into their educational journey at whatever point they needed and take it as far as they wanted 
came into my head, and by lunch that day, I had uh, commitments for the legislation to be introduced uh, the following year in the General Assembly, uh, 2004. Mm. And there were there were 2,000 African-American children who were left permanently without a formal education in their lives by massive resistance. Wow. Wow. And they were still alive. They were in the community. Many of them, yes, had moved out of state, but but I saw these people every day. They were part of our present day. Uh, it's not something that, that was over and done with in the past, which is why reparations nationally has such truth and resonance, because we are in a continuum. Slavery is over, yes, but the aftershocks of slavery are with us now, just as the, the aftershocks of massive resistance were still in Prince Edward County. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so do you, do you readily sort of wrap your arms around the idea that what, what you're doing, what they're doing in Prince Edward County, Virginia, is, is a form of reparations, is a small way to try to pay back people who were wronged in the past? It's very much an act of reparation, and I just wish to God someone else had had the idea 30 years ago when these when these um, individuals were you know were younger and had more of their uh, adult life ahead of them um, and, instead of behind them. But it didn't happen before. It it happened in 2004, and very much an act of reparation. And Prince Edward County has uh, formally publicly and permanently apologized for the school closures. Um, and that is something that this nation needs to do with slavery. Hmm. Uh, my guest is Ken Woodley, a journalist and author of the book, The Road to Healing. We're talking about uh, Prince Edward County, Virginia, a place that closed its public schools in 1959 in massive resistance to the U.S. Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision of 1954. Rather than integrate its schools, it just decided we're not going to have a public school system. That lasted until the fall of 1964, when the county at last was forced by courts to comply comply with Brown. Uh, If you want to Give us a call and talk about how we make up for these kinds of things in our history, not just slavery, but Jim Crow and inequality that has stretched across the time that the United States has existed in this space. Uh, Give us a call. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And uh, we can try to work you into the conversation. Let's go to Carolyn in Royal Oak. Carolyn, welcome to Detroit Today. Stephen, thank you so much for having this discussion. Hmm. It's wonderful. Thank you. I know I'm learning more. I'm reading. And I appreciate, I think we have to really work on this. We have to discuss it a lot more. And thanks again. Um, I have a T-shirt that says, All wealth is created by labor. Hmm. So all of us are involved in this, right. not just black people, not just white people, everybody who works, every union, everything. we got to work on this together. Mm. The right place, the right time. Yeah. Thanks again, Stephen. Carolyn, I really appreciate the call uh, and the comments, and I really love that uh that phrase, all, all wealth is created by labor, uh, which reminds us of the wealth that was created in this country by slavery, not just by the labor of slaves, but by the fact that slaves were the equivalent of money for a very long 
time in this country. The bills that we carry in our wallet are very similar to what slaves were uh, in the time before the Civil War. Carolyn, I really appreciate you listening and calling in. Uh, let's go to James in Sumter Township. James, welcome to Detroit Hi. today. Go ahead. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Great conversation. I hope we have several more. I wanted to have a little bit of discussion, maybe at another time, about uh, affirmative action as a form of reparations, hmm. um, a, 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 a way to try and fix what went wrong um, in a general sense, there's not a specific one-on-one correlation between the past discrimination and, and reparations, like in the Georgetown example, mm-hmm. like uh, the the schools in Virginia example, but as a way to try and fix what went wrong, to give African Americans, uh, other discriminated against minorities, access to college education, access to scholarship, access to jobs, access to apprenticeships that were denied uh, up until very recently. Um, yeah. And it, it, it's worked. Um, it, we did it for a long time. It's under attack now, and I think it's under attack for the same reason, that white folks refuse to admit complicity in a general or specific sense. Yeah, James, favorite. James, I really appreciate the, you interjecting that into the conversation. Uh, uh, Ken Woodley, I wonder if, if uh, what James is talking about there, a, a sort of more generalized acknowledgement of the wrong and then uh, benefits that, uh, that meet the need to to sort of right the wrong is something that they've thought of in Prince Edward County. The scholarship fund, uh, as uh, as James points out, is very specific, and that's a really great uh, idea. It doesn't get to some of the more generalized uh, injustice, I guess, that was uh, that was done to the folks there. Well, I think what we need to do uh, as a nation is formally apologize for slavery. We need a holistic approach, and this would affect every community. We've danced around slavery. We've addressed some of the aftershocks. But until we acknowledge the evil that was done, the terrorism that was slavery, we're not going to heal as a people. And this needs to be done permanently and publicly. It needs to be an act of Congress that is signed by whoever is president. That president should go on national television, coast-to-coast, prime time, read that apology for slavery and uh, Jim Crow segregation. Uh, And then those words would become the centerpiece to a national light of reconciliation memorial in the National Mall in D.C., that would be surrounded by statues of men, women, and children of all ages and ethnicities walking out hand-in-hand, 360 degrees, to every direction on the compass in this nation. And then we have a domestic Marshall Plan. We were able to rebuild Europe after World War II. We need to do that for our country as as part of a reparation package uh, that would make more narrowly focused reparations have greater impact. And I I see massive, enduring uh, investments in such fields as education, health care, housing, economic development, infrastructure, and job training in rural and urban communities that have significant African-American populations. Because slavery and segregation affected everything in life for African-Americans. Ken Woodley, journalist and author of The Road to Healing, thanks so much for being here with us on Detroit Today. 
Thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. All right, that's going to do it for me today. I'll be back tomorrow when we're going to have a preview of the Mueller report and the Michigan Department of Environmental Quality Director Liesl Clark will join us as well. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. I'll talk with you again tomorrow.